Welcome to the Black Sparrow Media Internet Broadcast Network. Everybody and welcome. This is episode number 162 of Linux in the Ham Shack, and this is going to be a humdinger of an episode. My name is Russ. I'm the host of the show, K5TUX. We also have Cheryl, who sits across from me, even though she denies it. I, I, I'm sitting across from you tonight. All right, that's very good. And also with us, we have our new co-host for the moment, Rich, KD0RG. How's it going tonight, Rich? Oh, it's going very, very well. There was a, a game the other day that, that went the way I wanted it to go. <laughs> yes, being a Coloradan, I imagine it did go your way. I, my, I lost interest after the Patriots lost, so... I understand. Uh, actually, I, I mostly lost interest when the Chiefs lost, and then I really lost interest when the Patriots lost. So, mm-hmm. uh, so we spent the day doing everything but watching football. But anyway, Rich, go ahead and do the first one. Okay, I, and we can skip that second one. I actually, it's it's less interesting than I thought. But uh, the first one, Tom Gallagher, NY2RF, will su- succeed David Sumner, K1ZZ, as ARRL CEO. This comes straight from the ARRL website. So Tom Gallagher, NY2RF of West Palm Beach, Florida, will succeed David Sumner, K1ZZ, as the Chief Executive Officer of ARRL, effective April 18th, that is this year. In that role, he will oversee all activities at ARRL, ARRL headquarters. ARRL, yes. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that was a slip because this story is like, whoa. Place him at the headquarters in Newington, Connecticut. Meeting in a special webinar session on January 24, 25th, all 15 ARRL directors voted to elect Gallagher as CEO and secretary, positions that Sumner will relinquish on April 18th. Gallagher will join the ARRL staff as CEO-elect on February 29th, and a transition period will follow. He joins the ARRL following... This is what got me. Three decades as an international investment banker and financial services executive. Uh, I'm going to see how he parlays that banking knowledge into uh, working for an amateur radio organization. <laughs> okay. You know, it, it's a big 501c3. The ARRL has two things. There's the, the foundation, which does the scholarships and stuff. They got about $4 million. The large corporation has $26 million. I mean, it's a big nonprofit, and there's nothing wrong with that, but... I just, you know, Sumner just seems like such a such a good guy. And Gallagher was a senior manager. He had a senior management position for Wachovia, J.P. Morgan, and uh, one other big one at one time. Recently, J.P. Morgan Chase pays $995 million settlement to AMBAC. This was due to the derivatives, the mortgage derivatives. I don't know. Do senior managers have, you know, (laughs) anyway, there were a lot of people that were affected by what happened the last 10 years. There's nothing to say that this guy was not a part of that and everything to say that he was. It rode me the wrong way. And then the way it happened, they had their annual meeting on the on the 15th, I think. And I asked the ARRL about this and why this special webinar session and so I kind of asked, well, how was this guy nominated or whatever? Well, apparently on, in October they, or November, they asked for applications. So, you know, uh, apparently Gallagher applied. And I don't know if anyone else applied for the job of CEO, but I'm told that there was a, a vetting process and that this is the guy we're going to go with. So I don't know. I, I'm just, to me, it's a little like, I don't know. Is this, is this really the best we could find? Anyway, he has a very nice house in West Palm Beach, if anyone wants to look it up, on Zillow. So, so he's going to be the uh, Donald Trump of the ARRL, right? I don't know. I'm going to try to keep an open mind, but as soon as I read the story, I'm like, J.P. Morgan, Wachovia? You mean that, that one that you know Wells Fargo had to buy because they were in such bad shape? Hmm, mortgage-backed uh, securities? Uh, gee, I don't know. You mean the ones that the bank sold to investors? Uh, kind of like, oh, yeah, these are good. These are good. 
those? Yeah, again, and, and the, sounds the exactly ones, like Donald You know, Trump. the subprime lending crisis? Hmm, I think <laughs> it's all related. I couldn't find any articles where Mr. Gallagher was saying that the banking industry needed to reform. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, and I doubt those exist. Bill in the chat room, November Echo 4 Romeo Delta, says uh, he was going to apply for the job, but he felt he was overqualified. <laughs> <laughs> So, <clears throat> nicely done. I'm glad they found somebody. Uh, Sumner is 67. He's done a great job. He's been he's been there for 40 years. I hope this is the guy. I guess we'll find well, out. Did anyone else feel pain from <laughs> from the last 10 years? Because I have. Yes, I believe everyone has if they live in the United States. Yeah, okay. um, unless you're in the and, top one tenth of one percent or whatever it well, is. That, I, I tell you, nobody really talks about it. Well, we okay. probably shouldn't talk about it either, because this is not uh, Wall Street and the Ham Shack, so we'll uh, move on to... I guess, we'll just go ahead and do this next one. I'll, I'll just read it well, through. Well, I'll just say one other thing. Okay. There was a time 20 years ago, people were not happy with the RRL, and I just, you know, it was like, oh, it was a unanimous decision, all 15 directors, it was a special webinar, you know, we couldn't do it at the general meeting 10 days earlier, why not? All seems a little shady, does it? There you go. Moving welcome, on. Welcome to politics, yeah. We'll move on to the next story after no digression whatsoever. FEMA issues call for youth council members. Applications for the Federal Emergency Management Agency's Youth Preparedness Council are currently open. The deadline to submit an application is Tuesday, March the 1st, 2016. Members represent the youth perspective on emergency preparedness and share information with their communities. They also meet with FEMA on a regular basis to provide ongoing input on strategies, initiatives, and projects. The Youth Preparedness Council offers an opportunity for youth leaders to serve on a distinguished national council and participate in the Youth Preparedness Council Summit. Council activities and projects center around five areas of engagement, programs, partnerships, events, public outreach, and publishing. And that was actually provided by you, Rich, but you got it from the ARRL, and there is information uh, at the FEMA website, ready.gov as well. Links to those will, of course, be in the show notes. So if you've got kids who are angling to be politicians, you know, the next Bernie Sanders or uh, Marco Rubio or whatever, uh, but they want to do it through the, the auspices of ham radio and get involved with emergency communications and emergency agencies and stuff like that, um, Check out those sites, and maybe they can become a part of the Youth Preparedness Council. It was just a, a neat opportunity for you know people who might be interested in that sort of thing. Matt in the chat room, Kilo Delta 9, Bravo Whiskey Juliet, says FEMA is a distinguished <laughs> failure. <laughs> I think FEMA has FEMA some stories. failures. I don't think FEMA is entirely a failure, but it has had some failures for sure. Absolutely. Uh, this next one is actually kind of interesting. Since these kinds of groups have been in the news of late... Well, I think there's a, a pretty big crossover, and we don't we don't talk about it much. But between the preppers and the hams, there are a lot of uh, preppers who are you know uh, silent hams, if you will. I, I don't know what else to call them. Um, hams in name only. <laughs> they they like it for the communication uh, purposes, if you will. And th- and then of course there are a lot of hams who are preppers. So this came from a blog, actually, a WordPress.com blog. But uh, it was it was really interesting, and you got to go to the blog because. Tons of pictures of, of, you know, these guys in Oregon with, uh, apparently they love the Baofeng radios. But here we go with, with the story. Militias use radio frequencies. The militia patriot movement in America has embraced radio communications in a big way. Within the past decade, the methods and communications gear have evolved from basic CBs and FRS radios to now include VHF, UHF, FM, HF single sideband, and HF digital communications. Radio communications now play an active role in armed confrontations as part of rump militia training in outreach and in organizing paramilitary groups. The article goes on and names actually a lot of frequencies that these groups are using, you know, how they're using them to, to uh, communicate and gives uh, frequency lists, <laughs> um, a lot of FRS stuff. But, uh, you know, they're doing a lot of stuff on ham radio as well. I don't know if I ever figured out who wrote this. The radio Master Reports is, uh, is what the blog is called. Uh, but anyway, it's, it's a pretty interesting little article. And lots of, you know, ideas that, that hams are pretty familiar with, but points all the radios out and, and, and then um, uh, 
masks everybody's faces so we can't tell who's who. But anyway. It's, <laughs> I saw uh, that. It's like they're members of ISIS. Like, we can't be identified. <laughs> exactly. <right? Yeah>. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but anyway, it really gives a lot of information and, and a lot of different frequencies, too, if you want to uh, put them in your scanner. We need to move on to the next one. And this one's actually kind of interesting, Rich, so go for it. Oh, it's me. Yeah, yeah. it's you. <laughs> I did like this one. But a classic game console targeted amateur radio operators. In the early days of the Atari 2600 system, games were simplistic yet entertaining. A variety of edutainment titles were released, with titles like Math Grand Prix being known for its strangeness. They also tinkered with some educational titles, such as Basic Programming, which was certainly anything but the basic computer language. A newly discovered prototype has been found that is part of the last category, which was most likely made with the ham operator in mind, as it helps teach the user Morse code. And this was for uh, the Atari 2600, the old VCS system. Um, there is a, uh, a website called ataripros.com, I believe. And, I, and I, I meant to look in to see who, who runs that, but I've really kind of, uh, well, it, it, it's actually your fault, Russ. <laughs> it's entirely my fault. It usually is. So. Well, you had mentioned MAME in show 115 when I was on uh, a long time ago, and that got me looking into retro systems and emulators and retro computer podcasts and and then you know and then all of a sudden oh i'm installing stella which is the atari 2600 emulator and i'm playing frogger and anyway it got me listening to these um uh these old uh uh, there's a bunch of atari podcasts out there (laughs) anyway yes and this uh this came up or i or maybe i discovered it i'm not sure but it is a working morse code tutor it's a little hard to figure out at first and I've been meaning to write a simple manual because all the functionality is there. You can run it right in Stella on your uh, on your Linux on your Linux box. Seems like a long way to go to run a Morse tutor. I guess oh, if you're just that kind of tinkerer, then sure, it's cool. <laughs> it is cool. It's re- <laughs> it's retro cool. <laughs> it is. Ted says, "Blame me because we can't blame Canada anymore." Well, that's that, right. That's entirely true as well. All right, but that's cool, and if you like uh, doing retro things, I haven't actually played with the Stella emulator in some time. There there hasn't been any real reason for me to jump back on the 2600 and go play Yar's Revenge or anything like that, which, by the way, is probably one of the best games there ever was for the 2600. That and Kaboom, I spent many hours playing that game. Mm-hmm. So anyone who remembers the 2600, I am sure remembers those. And, of course, they all remember Combat because I'm pretty sure it was bundled with it. Yes, uh, the Pac-In game, yes. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, Pac-Man after that. Right. I think Pac-Man was, was put in there later. Yeah, I'm sure it was. I'm pretty sure Combat came with it, and uh, Space Invaders, I think, and, and Pac-Man were real early games for the 2600. That's cool. I enjoyed that story, actually, and I, I love retro gaming anyway. I've got all kinds of emulators, and we actually have uh, stand-up arcade games and, and pinball machines here, like the real ones. Really? Everything. Yes, really. I did not know that. That's cool. Yep. And all of my servers are named after 80s arcade machines. I have, like, Tempest and Sinistar and Zaxxon and Frenzy, Berserk, lot, lots of them, Robotron. Uh, nice. So I, there's there's many, 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 many more, but <laughs> that's a sampling. All right. And Cheryl's wow, getting cool. bored over there, so you know what? You're going to read the next story. <laughs> what? <laughs> me? Are you talking me? I was sitting here playing Yahtzee. So. Yeah, so guess what? You're not playing Yahtzee anymore. Uh, okay. All right, we're done with our amateur radio topics. We're moving on to open source and Linux and, and things computer-like. Linux Foundation quietly scraps individual memberships. The Linux Foundation has quietly amended its bylaws so that individual members, now called supporters, no longer have the right to elect board members. Boo. Yeah, boo. The Linux Foundation is a nonprofit association which sponsors those developing the Linux kernel, including Linus Torvalds, and runs various collaborative projects to set standards and support use of Linux. It has more than 500 corporate members, including IBM, Intel, Oracle, Hewlett Packard, Enterprise, Google, and Facebook. Until recently, individuals could join the association paying $99 for a package which included a Linux.com email address and the ability to run for and vote in elections for a Linux Foundation board seat. This type of membership is no longer available. 
in its place as an individual supporter scheme. They get you an email address and various discounts, but no voting rights. And I had to shorten that URL because it was ridiculously long, and now I don't remember where it actually came from. But the shortened URL will be in the show notes. It actually came out of the register. That's, oh. uh, that's a UK newspaper. I don't know. There's been a little controversy over it they, uh, because, you know, some people are worried there's too much corporate influence. Um, my understanding is the Linux Foundation fund kernel development, Russ? That is a good question. I'm not sure that they fund it directly, but I know that they provide support, and I'm not sure if it's financial support or other support, but they definitely provide support in in some ways, if not every way, to kernel developers. I, I think that's kind of what it's about. Okay, yeah, it, it's actually in one of the... the Foundation is a nonprofit association which sponsors those developing the Linux kernel, including Linus, and runs various collaborative projects to set standards and support use of Linux. Hey, support use of Linux. Hmm, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> cool. That's what we like to hear about. Uh, but, it, you know, 500 corporate members, and I, I think they had. Um, they had a few at-large uh, people. They actually kept two of them. One of them is a ham in Colorado here, Badal Garby, and actually uh, emailed him, but I didn't think he would actually get back to me. But um, <laughs> uh, I don't know. There was there was some fuss because somebody was running, and, and then they changed the bylaws. And so this Matthew Garrett speculates that the change was made to block an individual from being elected. I, it seems, you know, I don't know if that's true or not. I guess the story is about Linux being put in control of corporate interests as opposed to community interests. Matt, KD9BWJ in the chat room has a comment about something about people think the closing of the community board spots in response to Karen Sandler announcing she was going to run. Now, Karen Sandler, she's the one from Free and Freedom and the Free Software Conservancy, the legal entity. The Conservancy, the Travel Club, uh, the uh, the no, Travel uh, Club. I'm That's in, in there. <laughs> it, well, I because you know, yes, this story it, it it has to do a lot with her. And I actually looked into the Conservancy, and yeah, they sponsor some projects and put on a lot of conferences and travel a lot and spend point two five percent. Is that right? Or maybe two point five percent? No, point two five percent of their <laughs> money on actual. Uh, GPL enforcement, but anyway. Oh, so it's one of those. Okay, everything everything <laughs> well, goes to uh, overhead. They support a lot of projects, and in doing so, they put on conferences that they need to travel to and 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 put on, and and you know that's that's a lot of time, money, and effort, and I understand that. But then you, you're going through the their 990, and it's like, uh, yeah, okay, uh, yeah, maybe forty thousand for for enforcement or something, but you know, they talk a lot about enforcement on their podcast. That's why I bring it up. Yeah. I actually listened to that. I have been a listener of free as in freedom and whatever it was called before that for some time. And I actually enjoyed that. But they, when they talk about it, they make it sound like everything they do is about uh, software, you know, licensing and GPL enforcement and uh, corporate violators and all that kind of thing. But clearly if you get down to the, to the numbers, that's not the case at all. There's a comment in the chat room that a lot of the money is for other groups, and that's true. They 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 get a lot of donations that then go to, you know, their their projects. It's an interesting story with a lot of different different aspects to it, and I don't mind the corporate sponsorship show sponsorship so much. It pays to get it developed. I don't see much of a difference here. Uh, what did it say? The article has 500 corporate members. We're benefiting in the end. Yeah, and there's also a comment in the chat room about the fact that, you know, the Linux kernel is corporate controlled because of the contributors to it, but it's it's contributed by a wide group of people and I don't think that just because a corporation contributes to the kernel that it is therefore corporately controlled. I mean, so, some of these things are, you know, if you figure what the Linux kernel does, it is the thing that powers the computers. And so if uh, corporations are providing the drivers that they put into the kernel that powers the computer that you're using, that to me seems like a good thing. And I don't think it's necessarily swaying the direction of kernel development just because there are corporate developers. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. And I don't mean to sound anti any of these groups. You know, we need the nonprofits and 
they they do important work, but it's not always the perception is not always um, the reality. I guess. Yeah, just look at the uh, presidential race in the United States. Okay, so the the last thing we have in the open source uh, topics for the, tonight is something I looked at earlier, which is the Solus OS. I took a look at this because someone had mentioned it to me before as a kind of nice entry-level Linux system, so I decided to actually take a look at it today. I downloaded the Solus 1.0 ISO. I installed it in a virtual box image, uh, and I got it up and running. It, it actually uh, starts up as a live ISO. Uh, it uses a highly customized GNOME 3 desktop environment. It doesn't really look like any desktop environment that I've seen before, but it is based on GNOME 3. I saw lots of articles saying that it was a Debian-based distribution, but it is not. Uh, it was entirely rewritten, ground up. It has its own package manager, and it's kind of designed to look a little bit like a Mac operating system. It has a taskbar across the top as opposed to the bottom, and everything is kind of universally installed by default. There are currently very few extra packages available for Solus, but what it does include are things like your normal system utilities, like your terminal, your settings, configuration, stuff like that, some basic applications to get you on the web, like Firefox and and so on. Uh, it has Rhythmbox for music management and Hexchat for IRC and stuff like that. It, it has you know your basic set of applications, and it runs as a live environment, so you can just power it up right from uh, the CD image and use it. You can do an install if you want, which I did, although I did it inside of a VirtualBox environment. One thing I did notice is that the installer, while, while the live image is actually very easy to use, the installed version is not super simple. It does a lot of hand-holding. It does walk you through most of the procedure. But one thing I found as kind of a glaring issue for those people who might want to use this as a sort of, it's just out of the box, I don't have to do anything, point and click install, I have a Linux distro running, is that it does not handle disk partitioning for you. If you have a blank system with an unpartitioned hard drive that you're trying to install this on, all it does is bring up gparted, and it makes you actually install a partition table, create partitions, and everything like that. It does not automate any of that process. If you're not familiar with any of that process, you're going to get stuck there. Now, if you if you didn't get that far and you're just running off the live image, you don't have to worry about this, and maybe that's what they're counting on. Uh, maybe they have figured that if someone's actually going to do a true install of the Solus OS, that they already know a little bit about Linux. But I'm not sure I would necessarily make that assumption. Even Debian has the option to just say, click this and we'll... We'll make the necessary changes to your hard drive for you so that we can install Linux and you can you know just sort of go about your business and and we'll take care of the the nitty gritty details and you don't have to deal with that. Solus has uh, at least in the in the first iteration in the one release decided that that is not necessary. The other thing is they've uh, rewritten package manager uh, they've created their own thing called eo package eopkg, which is another thing you have to learn, especially if you've come in from some other uh, distribution and their current set of repositories is very very small one thing i will say is that in the live version if you just want to use the applications that it has installed by default it's very slick looking it's very flashy uh, requires no know-how whatsoever it just kind of comes up and runs presents you a desktop and away you go and if all you want to do is browse the web talk on irc uh, and send email uh, and listen to your music collection you're pretty much good to go. Anything else? At this point, I would say you're screwed. Uh, they are doing active development. They're basically taking requests for features, uh, requests for packages, because since they have developed their own package manager, they you know need to know what people want to use inside their operating system so they can create packages for it. There is a software manager. It's a point-and-click thing, uh, kind of like the software center in Mint or Ubuntu or anything like that, where you can search for applications 
Uh, right now, I think there's only like 30 or 40 available packages. It's pretty new. It's up and coming. Uh, it's something that will probably get there somewhere, someday, uh, if there's even a reason to have another Linux operating system with a different package manager and, you know, just another branch in that Linux tree that we talked about in the last episode. You know, for someone who doesn't really want to get down into it, just wants to run something off a thumb drive or whatever, uh, this might be for them. Uh, so you can check out Solus OS. Uh, the URL is https colon slash slash solus dash project. Uh, Solus is Sierra Oscar Lima Uniform Sierra dot uh, com. Uh, lots of information there. There's actually a pretty good installation and basic u- utilization tutorial that you can download in PDF format. You know, my overall impression was it's kind of an interesting, if not necessarily progressive distribution. I guess I just want to wait and see where it goes from here. Uh, for those people who like to play around and try new stuff, this might be great. For someone who wants something to just fly out of the box and uh, doesn't have a lot of requirements for what they do with Linux, this would probably work. I would think for the uh, average Linux user, it's probably a little too basic and a little too non-functional to be useful. That is what it is. That's my uh, encapsulation of Solus OS. They have a, a pretty good wiki with lots of instructions for people trying to get it working. And there was also a user guide on the download page. But yeah, you were right. When it came to partitioning, it said, oh, if there's free space, you can do this. But it doesn't tell you what to do if there's no free space. <laughs> so you're on your own. And also, UNet booting won't work uh, for writing it to your USB stick. You have to use... Um, I don't know, it was in the wiki, they had some other things. So there's a few little things that aren't, you know, for people who distro hop, there, there's a few things that aren't standard, I guess I'd say. That's kind of been my assessment as well. It's something I would like to see where they go with it. But for right now, it certainly doesn't meet my needs. But uh, Well, shall we move on? We shall move on. So let's talk about HamLib. Uh, yeah, do you say ham, HamLib? I always say HamLib. But New Year, new HamLib. Yay! Yay! Well, not terribly. <laughs> this came off of the... Hamlib uh, mailing list, I think. Well, not terribly ambitious. A new release of Hamlib is worthy of note for the amateur radio community. This is mainly a bug fix release, and fortunately, the bugs were minor. It also includes increased Kenwood radio support. Additionally, the Windows packages are once again built with MSVC++. What is that? I don't know. Visual C++? Yeah, Microsoft Visual C++. Oh, it sounds so amazing. I know. It's not. (laughs) (laughs) support that was skipped in the original 3.0 release uh this support was highly requested and has been restored you know hamlib is constantly being worked on there's there's a very active uh list there and it's easy to be a part of that if you want to since we're using linux we might as well uh use cqr log then huh i definitely think we should i really enjoy cqr log there's some information on the future development of CQR log here, uh, direct from the horse's mouth from Peter, OK2CQR, who wrote the application. Uh, he reports, quote, two days ago I released a new version. Unfortunately, it has a very few annoying bugs. I'd like to have better releases in the future, and it won't be possible without more testing. I've been using this latest version for a few months. Martin has been using it for a few weeks, but we didn't find the bugs that users found in a few minutes of testing. Isn't that always the way? Because you're the developer and you use it the way you think it should be used, it's the users who use it in ways you didn't intend that always find the things and break it. He says, I've created a new forum section for CQR log testing where there will be weekly builds available. If you are familiar with Linux a bit, please help and test the beta releases. And more information is available in my first forum post. Uh, This actually came directly from CQRlog.com. Uh, link to that site and to the forum post that this came from will be in the show notes. It's an opportunity for us to um, to help out an actual developer. He's asking for our help. I think it's only right we give it. I actually signed up for the for the forum. He actually checks call signs, you know, to make sure you're a real person. So it takes um, a day or so, and then I haven't uh, done anything um, as far as you know trying out a new release. But uh, I'll be doing that this week. In the last episode, you brought up WXBot. You told us about how you can use APRS and an APRS message to WXBot and receive a uh, location-specific weather forecast 
uh, and you want to talk about it some more. So talk about it some more. If you go to findyou.com, so F-I-N-D-U.com, you can actually send messages via the web to somebody on APRS. So I was playing around with this WX bot. I don't think I quite understood what it was. It's a Perl script that you can run at your shack and you can listen for your call sign and people can, and then you can modify the Perl script, make it do whatever you want. I didn't realize how cool this thing was. You can send an APRS message to KI6WJP space who is space K5TUX, send the message, and he sends back your information, Russ. And I, I did this. Um, if you just Google APRS send message, I think that uh, that find you site will come up. Yeah, send APRS message. That's what you need to look for. And it'll be the first link in, in Google. And then you'll see right there your, your call sign, send message to, and that's where you want to put the KI6WJP. And then the message can be who is space and somebody's call sign. And there's, a, there's just a bunch of other stuff other data that you can uh, that you can put in there. It's just I, I didn't realize it had that much functionality. And he he also updated it. I think at the time we talked about it, it was version one point four. Now it's version one point twelve, and he's just added more things that you can search for. I have not experimented with it. Only you of the three of us have, so uh, we'll have to rely on your experiences with it. But it does sound interesting. I love how my information is being floated around on the APRS network, but, you know, it is what it is. It is. I also got my extended forecast for uh, for the Greeley area, and I, I think at the time it was before that last snowstorm, and we, we got almost a foot. All right. Anyway, it's pretty slick. Well, we're going to move on. The last thing I threw in here was my experiences just today with building WSPR, or Whisper, on Debian 8 Jesse, because that is the operating system I happen to be running on my Hamshack computer, uh, which is a little Dell micro thing. It's about three inches square. Perfect Hamshack computer. I actually have two rig interfaces connected to it, one to my two-meter rig, one to my HF. It all works quite well. In talking with Hutch at Zydeco's recently, when... Uh, we were experiencing his wonderful Cajun cuisine. He actually had the opportunity to take us up to his ham shack, so we went and took a look at it, uh, which involved uh, a nice a nice Yezu rig, an older one. I uh, can't remember which one exactly. And uh, he was talking about getting that set up from the restaurant and actually being on Whisper. And I was like, you know, I haven't been on Whisper in for ages, so I'm going to try and run Whisper on my computer. Now, my Hamshack computer is a 64-bit machine, and I have a 64-bit version of Debian 8 running on it. The prepackaged version of WSPR, or Whisper, is a 386 version. It's 32-bit. And I figured I could just do the dpackage add architecture i386 do the package install and everything would be hunky-dory well that's not what happened uh when i added the 32-bit architecture to my machine and tried to install the package for whisper it erased my desktop environment that was a bad thing i managed to get that fixed before it caused any real permanent damage but decided at that point that maybe i should go the other way and just build it from source that way it would be 64-bit native, and I wouldn't have to worry about packages doing weird things to my desktop. I embarked on a long, torturous journey to installing Whisper. I got onto the WSJT developer's mailing list after I found problems. I, w I was having uh, Whisper's seg fault on me, and so I asked on the WSJT developer's mailing list why this was happening, and they said, here, you should check out this document. It explains what happens when you install it on Debian 8, and this is what you need to do to fix it. I was actually able to download the source code from the Subversion repository. You have to have Subversion on your system if you want to do this. Do an SVN CO or checkout of the Subversion code. Uh, then you have to apt-get install on a Debian system a whole lot of packages. Most of them are Python 3 packages because 
Whisper and WSJT and WSJTX and all of these applications written by K1JT are written in Python. So you have to have all the necessary things. So I went through the build process. There's some basic documentation that explains how to run the auto gen script and run the make, make install and all that kind of thing. And I figured out for myself all of the packages that I needed to install, which included the build packages, libtool, autoconf, Python 3 packages, port audio, sample rate, ASCII doc and ASCII doctor for building the documentation pages and this, that, and the other thing. And then I installed the last thing, which I finally figured out, which is the Python 3-PIL package or Python pillow, uh, which has to do with graphics manipulation inside Python. So I did that, blah, 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 got everything built. It, it, It built fine. It compiled I got it installed on my system. I ran it. Uh, I configured it so that it was, you know, powering my rig. Uh, I had rig control and everything, and it was receiving fine, and I was getting data. And then when it would go to decode the received data, it crashed with a segmentation fault. And so that's when I got on to the mailing list, WSJT Devel, and I asked, why the hell is this happening to me? And uh, I got great answers, a great response from Greg, Kilo India 7, Mike tango who basically walked me through the issues and what he said was here's a document that you should have read before you did this and if you're trying to build this on debian 8 jesse this is what causes problems and here's how to fix it so what it involved is removing the pillow packages the python 3 pillow packages that come out of the debian repository because apparently there's some issue with them that affects whisper builds and then you have to go through a basic like two-line terminal procedure for getting and downloading a source copy of Pillow and building it on your machine and then going through the rest of the regular Whisper build procedure. Uh, So I did that, went through the procedure, got Whisper up and running again, and all was magnificent. And as actually, as we speak, while we were having this conversation, while you're listening to me, at least for those people in the chat room, and probably, it, you know, after this, I am on Whisper. My radio is right here beside me over my right-hand shoulder. It is transmitting and receiving on 30 meters. And if you go to the Whisper map, which uh, links to all of this information, actually will be in the, the show notes, of course, links to the dock that I found, links to how to do the build, and, of course, links to where you can find the Whisper map will all be in the show notes. So... I'm out there. You can check my call sign, K5TUX. You can see that it's there. Um, I've had, uh, on 30 meters, I've had contacts at 5 watts from as far away as South Africa. So that's pretty cool. Um, I've been enjoying Whisper. I actually, I kind of like it because it's uh, sort of a hands-off mode, and it does give you a real good idea of the propagation from your site to positions around the world. It's kind of like a basic locator service. I know that 5 watts is actually pretty QRO for for Whisper, uh, but unfortunately my radio doesn't go any lower than that, so uh, that's what I'm uh, resigned to. But it's kind of neat to see how it works. It's it's a real interesting mode, and if you want to contact me on Whisper, you can. Plus, the document that KI7MT showed me actually gives you cut-and-paste information so that if you're running a Debian system, uh, specifically Debian 8 or Ubuntu 14.10, you can actually just cut and paste the commands straight out of the document, put them into a terminal window, and it does all of the all of the build information and package installs for you. So it's pretty straightforward, uh, really straightforward for a source build. Uh, and of course, if you're running a 32-bit operating system and you just want to do a, an app dash get install Whisper, that will work as well. But uh, being that my my system was 64-bit, it didn't work at all. But uh, I got through the growing pains, I got through it all, and I now have a working Whisper. So there, there's my adventures in Whisper. Forgive me if I'm wrong. Wouldn't the Python 3, shouldn't the code be written to work with the Python 3 pill package and not vice versa? The information in the document that he sent me indicated that there was something wrong with the packaged version of Python pillow. I'm not sure what the problem was exactly. I'm not sure if it was referencing like a 32-bit library, if there was just some issue, you know, with with the package code. But all I know is that when I actually downloaded and built 
the pillow library from source, every problem I had cleared up. Okay, cool. If I had actually found that document first before I did all of the stuff I did today, the whole process would have taken me 10 minutes because it literally walks you step by step, cut and paste into the terminal. This is how you download. This is how you check out the subversion repository. This is how you install, or these are the packages that you need to install. This is how you build Pillow. If, if I'd actually seen that first, if I'd somehow managed to stumble across that bit of documentation before I started my, my journey, uh, it would have been a hell of a lot shorter. I remember the first time I, I tried to build anything, I didn't realize you needed the build essential. I mean, that... <laughs> that that build essential is probably my favorite Debian meta package because it includes almost everything that you would ever need to do to build anything from source. I, I should probably put this in the show notes somewhere, but when, when I get um, a Debian system up and, and up and running, the very first command that I do is app-get install build essential make auto make auto conf lib tool bison flex if you do that i may have left something out but i think that's most of it then you can almost build anything i found that out a long time ago <laughs> and then also <laughs> i remember i was making something and there was a tutorial or a guide and it said oh you need this let's say just some python package so I install the Python package and it still doesn't build. And it's like, what's going on? And then not only do you need the Python package, but you need the Python whatever dash dev as well. If anybody's trying to build something and it won't build, look for the dash dev packages as well. Yeah, the the dev packages, for, for anybody who doesn't know, are the ones that provide the include files. And if, you have, if you've never built something, you have no idea what include files are. I have built things and I don't know what include files are. <laughs> okay. Well, when you're when you're building something, there there will be bits of information in the code that say include something else. And you need you need that something else so that it has the information to create the library that you're trying to build. And the the include files are the things that are in the dev packages. The lib files, the ones that are like lib python, lib tk, lib whatever, those are actually the binary compiled libraries. Those are like Windows DLLs. But if you're actually trying to build something where you actually need the source of a library to compile into the thing you're trying to build, those are the include files, and those are what are included in the dev packages. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, very good. Yes, yes. Uh-huh. Sometimes you don't need to build the library into your source code, you know, into the thing you're trying to build, because the build will actually just link to the binary library. The idea is that if you if you have a dev package installed because something requires it, what you're doing is you're actually using that you're using the source code of the library to build the library into the final product. So you're not reliant on a link to an existing library. It's actually in the build. If you just have the lib packages, what you're doing is you're building a binary that then links to as in it's required to have an existing binary library on the system somewhere. Uh, which is a dynamically linked library, which is coincidentally what DLL stands for, dynamically (laughs) linked library. So, (laughs) yeah. So a little bit of programming info for those people who are into that. Ooh, we got a little technical there. I know. Wow. People are, some some people are getting a little tingly. (laughs) Other people are nodding off. (laughs) (laughs) Other people have turned the program off entirely and will never listen again, but that's okay. We're done with our tech topics for a little while anyway, and we've got about three and a half minutes of music we're going to listen to. This is by a country artist, I guess you'd call her, or a kind of a rock country artist from Nashville, Tennessee in the United States. Her name is Allie Ferris. Uh, She put out an EP uh, a couple of years ago, back in March of 2014, Uh, and this was a track off of there called Simple Mind. I actually liked all of them uh, that I listened to. But this is the one I chose to play. Uh, It's a little over three minutes long, so we'll listen to this, and then we'll uh, talk about some other stuff.
of a light, easy, happy-go-lucky kind of song. But we're nothing if not diverse on this program, and I do like a lot of different music. So uh, <laughs> straying very far afield from the metal realm, that's Ali Ferris with Simple Minds from back in 2014. Let's move on from music. Let's talk about some announcements and some feedback, and we have a buttload of it today. Let's start with a couple of announcements. Let me let me first start by saying our generosity campaign is up and going. It kind of stalled out after the first few days, so I'm going to try and mention it as often as I can. I'm going to plug it on social media as much as I can. And you all should do that as well, because we're trying to get back to Hamvention this year, May of 2016. And uh, we really could use your help getting the word out on social media sending us a few bucks if you can. We've added a bunch of new promos, new perks, and uh, we would love to have your support if we can. And if we do get your support, we will see you in May in Ohio. So that's that link to that, of course, will be in the show notes, uh, prominently placed so you can find it. It'll be all over the website and, of course, all over social media. So if you're hearing me or reading our content, you'll know where to go. And thank you in advance. For anybody who can uh, help us out in that regard. Uh, I got an email earlier this week about the Northeast Louisiana Ham Fest, which is going to be hosted on April 16th, 2016 in Monroe, Louisiana. It's going to be at the Barrack Shrine Temple in Monroe. And it's the same location that this event has been for the past few years. Uh, they say that they're they're working on the program right now. A lot of it is incomplete, but you can go to twincityhams.org slash hamfest.html to find out information about that if you can be a participant at the, or maybe even a, a vendor at the uh, Northeast Louisiana Ham Fest in the middle of April. So there's that. Uh, I also saw that there's, uh, this, this was actually, a lot of our feedback actually this week came from our Google Plus community. If you go to Google+, look at the communities, and search for Linux in the Hamshack, you will find our community there. There is lots of great information in that community. We get a lot of our feedback from there. You can uh, post information about the show. You can post information about Linux or Hamshack or whatever it is you want to talk about. We are coming dangerously close to 2,000 members in that group. There are lots of hams who will will, uh, see your posts and have information for you. Uh, and you can disseminate to other people as well. So very cool that. In there, someone posted a link to a YouTube video that lists a bunch of special event stations that are going to be fired up for the February 27th to 28th time frame, commemorating the 156th birthday of Samuel F.B. Morse, creator of Morse Code. Uh, so check that video out and uh, look for all of the special event stations that will be on the air on those dates. We got a voicemail. Voicemail is good. We love voicemail. This voicemail came from Doug, November 6th, Lima Mike X-Ray. Hello, Russ, Cheryl, and Rich. This is Doug, November 6th, Lima Mike X-Ray, calling in because I heard Rich's voice there for the first time. Wanted to say hello, Rich. Nice to hear you. Um, also, please give Pete my best. Uh, hope to hear him again soon. I'm just getting started on this road, and we'll just have to see where it takes us. Thanks a lot. Bye. All right, that's from Doug, November 6th, Lima Mike X-Ray. I'm not sure what road he's talking about. I'm not sure if he's talking about the road that we're going down with Rich as our new co-host or the one that he's actually driving down while he's listening to the program and leaving us a voicemail, but... Whatever the case, thanks, Doug. We always appreciate voicemail. We especially love voicemail. And I'm sure Rich is glad to hear you say that 
you uh, enjoyed his presence on the program. We've got some great feedback on the Google Plus community. The first one we got is from John McGrath, and he says he just listened to episode number 161. That's the last one, the one before this one you're listening to now. He also says you guys, Russ, Cheryl, Rich, and of course, Matt Williams, rocked the Badger quota and then went into ludicrous mode. Yes, I believe we did. The show was great. Rockin' the badger, rockin' the badger. <laughs> Cheryl don't like it. <laughs> rockin' the badger. I think and you need to record that. Yeah, no joke. <laughs> that, that can be our open. That can be our Creative Commons uh, music for next episode. There you go. Continuing on our Google Plus community post, we have one from Matt Huber who says, "Crunchbang apparently lives on in spirit." There's a community version of it called Bunsen Labs Linux, which I discovered while searching for a lightweight Debian to install on a netbook. It installed just fine, and other than branding, feels pretty much like Crunchbang did. So that's very cool. I know we announced on the show several episodes back that Crunchbang had ceased development, so it's nice to see that someone took up the mantle and it's still being put out there. You can find Bunsen Labs Linux at https colon stroke stroke www.bunsenlabs.org. This one is from Koos Vandenhoot. He's in the chat room all the time, although I know he's not there now because he is from Amsterdam and is probably not awake at this point. But his call sign is Papa Delta 4 Kilo Hotel. And he says, Trusted QSL, the logbook of the world program from the ARRL, has recently been updated to allow for the NPOTA contest, which we talked about. That's the National Parks on the Air contest. I kindly ask the maintainer of Trusted QSL for Ubuntu to make these updates available as Ubuntu packages, and he did that. So now version 2.2 is available via the Ubuntu Hams and Trusted QSL PPAs. Instructions on adding the latter PPA is on the linked page. And the information from the ARRL.org website about the latest version of TQSL, Trusted QSL, which of course will be in the show notes. So if you use that and use Logbook of the World, uh, you now have a way to uh, access National Parks on the Air, which is the uh, year-long activation of National Parks going on this year. So that's very cool. Thanks, Coos, uh, Papa Delta 4 Kilo Hotel, for that information. Uh, next, we have some comments. Comments on uh, our recent episodes. We have one from Julian, Oscar Hotel 8, Sierra Tango November. A comment on the website on episode number 159, and he says, I was really disappointed that there was no mention of the Wolf iLink interface for Android devices. The Wolf iLink is the only device designed for Android devices, but also works equally well with a Linux laptop. It needs no USB port, has built-in PTT, removing the need for Vox, and it's just slightly larger than a matchbook. Here is a video where I show the device being used with a Yaesu FT817 and FLDG running on Anti-X15 Linux. There is no point in presenting the same old archaic ham radio gear on your podcast. The Wolf iLink is innovation for the digital portable ham. Thanks for sharing. Julian, Oscar Hotel, 8, Sierra Tango, November. There was a couple of things I wanted to say about this. The first is, thanks, Julian, for providing the information on the Wolf iLink. Uh, that is actually a very cool device, and I wish I had found it, and I was talking about it when we talked about all of our other rig interfaces that we mentioned in episode number 159. Uh, the other thing I would say is that, no, I don't believe it's actually pointless to point out rig interfaces that other people might use. Some people might have older hardware. Some people may not even be aware of things like the signaling USB and other radio interfaces uh, that are available to hams out there because they may have never wanted to do digital mode interfaces. They've never possibly listened to the show. And all of these devices do still exist. And they're all perfectly functional radio interface devices. So I don't think it's necessarily useless to talk about them. However, I do take your point that we probably should have pushed the envelope a little bit further and talked about some more modern types of interfaces like those that interface with Android phones and stuff like that. The Wolf Eye Link, by the way, I did look up. It only costs $40. Uh, it does come with pre-made interfaces, but they're only available for the... ICOM IC703 and 706, 
and the Yezu FT8 1757 and 97, I think. For everybody else, you have to build your own interface cable. So that that I consider a, a you know a possible limitation to the Wolfi Link. But if you want to do digital modes like PSK31 from your Android telephone, there is a way to do that. And I want to thank Julian once again for providing us with that information. And if I hear back from Wolfi Link about my request, we may be doing a review of the iLink and uh, let you know more information about that device uh, in an upcoming episode. If you get to uh, interview him, it'll be great because it's Wolfgang Philips, and uh, he's native. He's a native German, I think. So you know he'll have a great accent. And um, anyway, if you go to the the, the Wolfie dot com page, uh, he actually has a schematic up there. You can build your own if you want to. That's very cool. Neat. We love open hardware. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So we have links to Julian's video that he referenced in his comment, and we have links to the Wolfie or Wolfi interface, whatever, uh, that will be in the show notes. So make sure to check Wolfie. those out. Wolfie. Yeah. Wolfie. <laughs> Wolfie is awesome. Yeah, sehr gut. I, I can't oh, match man. your um, Austrian slash German accent. You, you blew us away with that last episode. So we have one final bit of feedback, and this is from Gary Kilo Charlie Three Papa Oscar, which, by the way, is still a fantastic call sign. Uh, if you didn't get that, by the way, it's KC3PO. And he says, I remember you talking about this, but don't remember if you found it in the end or not. It just popped up for me while I was doing something else. Voila! Uh, Kilo Charlie Three Papa Oscar. And what he did was he sent us a link to the uh, Linux flowchart that we were talking about in the last episode and actually the one that he sent which of course the link will be in the show notes is the one that i remembered the one that we actually found in the last episode wasn't it was not it the one he sent is the one i actually remember and the nice thing about this one if you look at it is it shows you all of the linux distributions that came from nothing and went to nothing uh, the one that we referenced in the last episode sort of only showed the major ones that actually evolved into something, but this one shows the non-starters, and there are many. So um, if you want to you know, check that one out, the link, of course, will be in the show notes. With that, we are down to the end of the announcements and feedbacks and the feedbacks. We're back. Feedbacks. We're down to the end of the feedbacks. And you know what wow. that means? We're at segment five. Everyone knows what segment five is, right? Dinner time. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's Cheryl's Recipe Corner. Yes. And Cheryl's going to tell us what's for dinner. Today's recipe is Cajun corn and bacon mock shoe. And the reason why I picked this is because tomorrow's Fat Tuesday. Recently, I had the opportunity to enjoy a lovely dinner with Matt Kilo Delta 9 Bravo Whiskey Juliet at Zydeco's, which is co-owned by Carter Hutch Hutchinson, Kilo 9 Kilo Juliet November, who also cooks a lot of the wonderful food. Hutch joined us for episode 131 back in June of 2014. Wow, that was a long time ago. It was. Well, I'm positive he's probably going to cringe at my recipe this week. We absolutely love this dish, and it's corn, milk, vegetable oil, onion, green pepper, Tomato, salt, cayenne pepper, green onions, and some bacon. Because bacon makes the world go round. So, and you just cook everything together, and you have a nice, lovely side dish, or add some more bacon, and it's an entree. That's my I, I like mock shoe as an entree, because corn and bacon and spicy and stuff, it's just really good. It is so. really good. With that, we're down to our final segment, which is the social media roundup. And there's one change we're going to do to this, which is Cheryl's going to read this. But I've been I've been going through and I've been trying to get everybody caught up so that the people who are actually subscribers, paid subscribers to our show, are going to get mentioned on this program every single episode from here on out because I think they should be. It shouldn't be that the people who subscribe yearly only get mentioned once a year right? while the people who subscribe monthly get mentioned every month. So what we're going to do is we're just going to mention everybody all the time. Plus, I'm also keeping a current list of subscribers on the website. If you go to the sponsors link or the sponsors tab across the uh, the top, 
you will see a current list of all of our paid subscribers and your name is there too if you're actually a paid subscriber so yeah and if you're not a paid subscriber go ahead and subscribe well, and you'll get to hear my voice next week read your name there you go that's very true and that's worth it right there two bucks it, a month absolutely <laughs> it's a ringtone opportunity there you go <laughs> All right, so let's hear it. Who are they? Okay, for this this week's donations and subscriptions, we have Jonas Rulio, Jeremy Hall, Michael Connolly, Harrison Kyle, Scott Pettigrew, Bob Yerke, Paul Griffith, Ronald Ike, Johnny Kinsey, Brian Smith, John Spriggs, Robert Halliday, Ben Schram, Michael Aiello, John Clark, Rob Branch Dash, Edward Donnelly, Donald Gover, Alan Wilson, Stephen Sainer, Dylan Engel, Doug Rader, Michael Lasky, Darren King, Petro Karsakis, and Donna Farron. On Facebook this week, Grant Hopper liked us. On Google Plus, we had Alan Marote and Jeff Hanscom. On Twitter, we had at underscore Scott underscore Meyer at Kilo echo echo yeah well i'm having a brain fart too <laughs> four kilo echo and at whiskey alpha one india bravo golf oh, okay <laughs> thank you for fixing that for me on youtube we have some guy in texas you hardly know that is actually his youtube name <laughs> richard mulby and the mountain rn nobody joined the mailing list nobody bought anything all right, we got down to the end. That's the show, oh, folks. I have to say, no one at Dayton advocates for Linux unless Russ shows up. If everybody gave five bucks, Russ and Cheryl could go be advocates for Linux at Dayton. There you go. That's I think, it. If, I think it's if, that easy. If everybody gave five bucks, we could pay off some of our bills while we're at it. But there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and but Rich would go. be there with right. his family. Yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Woohoo! In the penthouse. Yeah. yeah. All right. <laughs> There's a penthouse at the Motel Six. Oh wow! Sorry. <laughs> it's on the roof. You have to bring your own tent. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> oh, you said you said tent house. I thought you said penthouse. Yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's it that's 162 so i'm gonna push the button and we're gonna get on out of here that's right there's music in the background Yay. so anyway my name is russ i'm k5tux that's cheryl over there across the way and from all the way in Greeley, colorado we have rich kilo delta zero romeo golf Woo-hoo. you have been listening to episode number 162 of linux in the ham shack And you can become an LHS ambassador, like Rich did not so very long ago. Visit the website for upcoming events and information on how you can represent Linux in the Ham Shack at a nearby LinuxCon or HamFest. We love feedback. You can email us at info at lhspodcast.info, comment on an episode on the website, post on Google+, Facebook, or Twitter, or leave a voicemail at 1909-LHS-SHOW. That's 1909-547-7469. Visit our IRC channel, hash LHS podcast on the free node network, and subscribe to our mailing list. Show merchandise from coffee mugs to t-shirts can be purchased at cafepress.com slash LHS podcast. You can also help the show by clicking on the sponsored ads in the right-hand column of the homepage. You can listen to us live, like some folks are doing right now, every other Monday night at 8 o'clock Central Time. That's Tuesday at 0100 Zulu in the summer, 0200 Zulu in the winter. Our recording schedule and countdown timer to the next episode are on the website, and you can check that out at lhspodcast.info for everything you ever wanted to know about the show, and probably a few things you didn't. Thanks to all of our listeners, live and quasi-live, past, present, and future. We appreciate every one of you. We especially appreciate our paid subscribers. We hope everybody will hang out with us in a couple of weeks' time for episode number 163. So, from Cheryl, from me, Russ, K5TUX, and from Rich, KD0RG, in Studio 3D, southwest corner of Missouri, we wish you a good couple of weeks, and we'll see you next time.
more fun shooting guns in the house.